What up, people? Tuesday, July the 12th, N12, if you're playing our home game. I'm Guy Adami. That's Dan Nathan on the screen. Handsome as ever. Today's market call brought to you by CME Group, Dan. Where I love this, by the way. Where risk meets opportunity. And we are powered by Open Exchange. Doesn't seem like a lot's going on right now. But you know, in essence, a lot is going on. And we're going to break into it right now on Market Call, Dan Nathan. Yeah, no, today is actually one of those really interesting market days. If you look at what's going on in different mm-hmm. parts of the stock market, obviously, we've been focused a whole heck of a lot on the macro. But here we are. We are on the doorstep, Guy Dami, of Q2 earnings season. Here it is, buddy. I mean, like, you know, I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, I woke up this morning and I was kind of kind of looking at, we had that bloodbath in the NASDAQ yesterday, right? And then we had a lot of stocks green on the opening, but there was a couple uh, software stocks that were down a lot. And so to me, I thought it was really interesting. So I start looking at the news and I try to see what's going on. I see ServiceNow, right? This has been a massive SaaS leader. It's down almost 40% from its all-time highs just made last year. It's still a 90 billion or so market cap company, not an insignificant company. CEO was on Jim Cramer's uh, Mad Money last night, and he's talking about macro headwinds. And it was interesting that we've been talking a lot about, okay, consumer-related businesses, ad-supported technology have been weak, but we haven't seen the commensurate, you know, enterprise spending, like drop off in demand. Mm-hmm. Look at this guy. I love his I love his sunglasses. He goes on, he goes on TV. And you see what he's saying. He's talking about these headwinds. What do you make of the fact that we have a NASDAQ, we're going to go through a bunch of the charts, that's basically up on the, uh, on the day, but we have a stock like this that's down more than 10%, dragging down Microsoft, obviously the second largest um, well, you know, component in the, in, that's in the NASDAQ. Exactly and the that's where I'm going. And I don't, I don't mean to do this live on air, but he, he wears those glasses. I think he had a terrible injury years ago that oh. I think he's required okay. to... That's during his SAP tenure, or kind of, you know, kind of like time. Jim McMahon, num- number nine. He was the Super Bowl winning, um, you know, quarterback of the 1985 Bears. I think he had an early. People thought he just wanted to look really cool wearing sunglasses all the time, but he had. A, I think he, he literally stabbed himself in the eye with a fork Ugh. when he was a, a kid or something like and that. And I'm sure there are people right now that would say to themselves, "I'd rather be stabbing <laughs> myself in the eye and listen to these two yeah. drone on." Yeah. And by the way, you said you woke up this morning, the house was cold. That's a line from Bruce Springsteen which you completely ripped off. But, you know, let's get into it. The NASDAQ is sort of treading water here, and the broader market seems to be struggling to go higher. This sort of makes sense to me into these bank earnings that we're waiting about for waiting for, for quite some time. So I do think we're going to see a bit of a relief rally. I also think some of this might be predicated on the fact that there's some stories out there saying this Fed pivot to basically lowering interest rates again or stopping to raise them at least might take place sooner than people think. So there's so many cross currents today on what appears to be an unchanged market. But as you said, below the surface, there are a lot of things happening. Yeah, so let's talk about this. You know, we talked a lot about Microsoft. Um, it seems like uh, nearly a month ago, the company pre-announced a negative, um, you know, whatever the calendar quarter, they're on a fiscal year. And, you know, because of FX, we talked a lot about the dollar yesterday. We're going to touch on it again. Um, but here, all of a sudden, you know, ServiceNow talking about maybe weakening enterprise demand. And I think that would be a kind of really important thing to focus on as we get closer um, into this earnings season. Guy, when you look at this Microsoft chart, though, over a five-year period, and you look at where it's come from, and it's only down about 26 
percent or so. And we talk about valuation all the time. We spent a lot of time talking about an S&P on forward earnings is trading about 17 or below 17 times, which is basically the 10-year average for forward earnings. And you see where Microsoft is well above you know, 20 times, it was as high as 27 times. What do you think if we are going to go into a period where there's less demand for enterprise software, that sort of thing, some of these names that we're trading in high multiples should- Vulnerable. Yeah, they're vulnerable. I mean, that's exactly right. They're extraordinarily vulnerable here. And we talked about it on this show. We've talked about it on Fast Money. I know Danny's brought it up as well. Okay, Microsoft warns on FX, that's fine. But if the next warning is on demand, that's a problem. And I think if you listen to a lot of these companies, what they're saying, I mean, you're talking about Oracle laying people off, layoffs across different sectors right now, makes you wonder what does the demand outlook look like? And if demand is waning, those valuations that were rich before having come down are still rich at these levels. So I think to your point, although Microsoft has sold off considerably since its all-time high, it's still not a cheap stock. And that, we're not picking on Microsoft per se. I think there are a lot of names out there that sort of fit this category. But I think you make a really good point. If it becomes a demand situation for a lot of these companies, to me, that's the next leg lower. Yeah. So let's just real quickly look at the IGV, that's the ETF that tracks enterprise software. Microsoft, Salesforce make up about 17% of it. Then you have Adobe, Intuit, Oracle, which make up another nearly um, 20% followed by ServiceNow. So you see the names that are in there and you look at this thing, it's down basically what... Um, you know, that that uh, service now is from its highs, nearly 40%. It's contending with that pre-pandemic highs. It just goes to show you just, you know, when we talk about pandemic winners, right, and pull forward, that sort of thing. I mean, these sorts of companies that enable people to kind of work from home or companies to really kind of work in these hybrid sort of manners that sell seats on a licensing basis, it worked really well here. But guys, let's go back to the fact that the S&P, okay, which had a tough day yesterday, basically unchanged on the day. But the, the NDX, the NASDAQ, if you look at the NASDAQ futures, they're up a little bit despite Microsoft being down 2.7% in this. You know, what does that sort of price action kind of tell you? You look at that NASDAQ futures chart, you see that little formation. Lots of tension is building there. It really feels like it's going to break one way or the other soon. No question you have this pennant formation that you drew. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't know a lot, but I think what's happening today is, you know, people might be fleeing Microsoft, as, as you can tell by the price action. I think they're finding their way into Apple. So I think one is sort of offsetting the other. We'll see how long that lasts. But that pennant formation that you've drawn, I think that's very powerful here. Obviously, it's going to break one way or another. I happen to think the break is going to be to the downside. But if the break is that downtrend line and we do go higher, you have to ask yourself, where can we possibly go? So I think we can get to the recent high that that top of that downtrend is drawn from. And I've thought for a while that we should be bouncing in the S&P to 4,100. So I can basic, I can definitely wrap my head around both those things. But again, it's going to come down to what we hear over the next couple of days. I think we're going to, I think the market direction for the next week and a half, two weeks might very well be determined by what happens. Obviously, CPI number, all this Fed chatter, bank yeah. earnings and those types of things. So the next couple of days, although it doesn't seem important in mid-July, actually is very important. Yeah, let's quickly look at the S&P futures, though, and you see the downtrend. It didn't even get back up to that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, 39.50 or so, which would have been that that downtrend that's kind of been in place since the highs in late March. And if you look at the 3,800 level, I mean, that was the low 
in May that we saw that last the meaningful bounce or so that was a little above 10%. And again, you know, the, 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 the counter trend rallies seem to be getting more anemic guy as we go here. So that 3,800 level in the S&P futures is really important. But I want to be clear, you know, you were calling for a rally. You got a rally off of those lows last month here. I think you just said you're un- it was a bit underwhelming. Let's back it out, though, to five years and looking at the S&P futures here. You see this level that you and I think that on multiple levels, why it should get back to those pre-pandemic highs. If we get back toward 3,400, you want to use 16 times or whatever, what we think might be low single mm-hmm. digits or flat S&P earnings growth year over year, that gets you to about 3,400. So again, we are in a very well-defined downtrend. You're going to have counter-trend rallies here. One might overshoot the way late March did, um, but you and I are still calling for a retest of that 3,400 level. No, I think so. And you know, we have some Fed headlines as well, if you want to sort of s- scroll to that because I think it's important. I think it tells this story. You know, you can say what you want, but this inflation pressures that we're going to hear about, it's going to keep them on an aggressive path, at least according to Bloom. But we'll see how that, you know, the cross current, the headwind to that is the fact that now that this yield curve is inverting in a very meaningful way, does that force their hand the other way? So again, so many cross currents here. In terms of the S&P, we had Paul Hickey from Bespoke on. I think he's still at Bespoke last night on Fast Money. And the question that I asked him, and I'm not suggesting he ducked the question, Dan, but one of the things I said is, listen, we were at an elevated uh, multiple for the S&P for a very long time, not only months, probably a year and a half, two years, where we traded anywhere from 22 to 23 times forward earnings. So my pushback to him was, can't you envision a scenario where we sort of overshoot the other way and we stay sort of not elevated, but depressed for a period of time. And I think that could yeah. happen here. I mean, 17 seems to be a reasonable number in terms of historic norms. But if the world is slowing down as meaningfully as you think it is, and I do, then maybe a 15 multiple for a while makes sense. And you put, again, now you can start doing that math. What is the $200 worth of earnings look on a 15 multiple? So that's why I think I continue to be overall bearish all along thinking there's a chance for a counter trend rally over the next week and a half. All right, well, let's talk about tomorrow. The main event is going to be that CPI print that you just kind of talked about. Bloomberg was previewing here. And, you know, the expectation is for 8.8%. That would be a new high, the largest since 1981. And all of this is coming at a time, guy, where we've seen, um, you know, major pullbacks in industrial commodities. Some of those kind of, you know, inflationary pressures that are keeping food and energy prices um, high here. So I guess the question is, if you have a hot number, if we come in at 8.8%, that just kind of, you know, so, you know basically, solidifies the Fed's stance and being aggressive in fighting inflation, which would be, I guess, negative for the equity markets. That's the kind of reaction we saw after a hotter than expected jobs number um, last Friday in an unemployment level at 3.6%. That won't budge. Give it to me what you're thinking, how you kind of game this out. What are what are traders thinking about tomorrow? Yeah. Well, 8.8, if that's what the number is tomorrow, just that headline, I mean, you think about that, how extraordinary that number is, you know, given what we've seen and given the fact that it really hasn't backed off. Now, what people will say is, okay, yes, 8.8, but it doesn't take into consideration the recent sell-off in the the crude oil market, which we'll obviously talk about as well. Um, And the crude oil market's obviously sold off considerably since. We'll see if that has any impact at all on the broader market. But what I will say, just on the, you know, anything north of 8.6 tomorrow, I think that just reinforces the fact that the Fed is behind the curve. And as much as people want them to pivot, 
they really can't pivot. And I think the yield curve will further invert. I think 10-year yields are headed down. I said it a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again. 275, we traded there. As a matter of fact, I think Carter Worth has a piece talking about 2.5% in the 10-year. What I'll yeah. tell you is I don't think you're going to see nearly a commensurate move in the two-year to those levels. So I think this choose tens, which is what? I think 10, 11 basis points inverted now. That could potentially get to 30 basis points inverted. And that, I think, Dan, you would agree, is not particularly bullish for anything. Yeah, well, let's go to this tweet here from Tavi Costa. And I think it kind of lays out what you're talking about here. I mean, one of the things is that I know that we've been talking about this a little bit on, on the tape, our podcast that we do that drops on Fridays. Check it out in the podcast stores with our good friend Danny Moses here. I know that the two of you guys think that the Fed, if they are remotely successful here, you thought they were way too late as far as you know tightening, okay, but they might kind of tighten us or hike us right into um, a recession here, right? So what happens after that, right? So Tavi's tweet here, I think is an important one, is that essentially every time the yield curve inverted, the Fed was forced to end its tightening cycle. Right. So again, if we go into a recession here, if we see all the things that the Fed wants to happen, right? So input costs, um, industrial commodities, price at the pump, housing, right? Even the stock market, which is down, you know, 20% the S&P and the NASDAQ is down 30%. And many of the most bubblicious stocks are down much, much more Then they've kind of achieved their goal, right? To kind of tamp down prices, if you will, or overheating economy. But it basically ensures that the Fed is then going to have to go back to their old reliable playbook and get a bit more dovish. What's your take on that and your timing of that? Because right now, if we want to look at the CME Fed uh, Funds Future Tracker here, you know they're basically saying in July that we're going to see a 75 basis point hike, okay? And then there's basically better than a 50% chance that we get at least a 50 in September. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have Fed funds futures, you know, above two and a half percent or Fed funds, you know, nearing 3%. And maybe that's it, right? We'll have a 10-year, we'll hit the charts in the 10-year in a second. Give me your take on that, guy, because I think that's really important. The timing of the pivot will be the thing that causes the stock market to stop going lower. Yeah, well, speaking about pivot, if we could toggle back I know somebody just got like an eye in their bingo just to look at that prior slide. And I'll say this. Yes, all of that is true. The difference this time, and I truly hate that expression, but the difference this time is inflation's a real problem. You're talking about inflation that is multiple standard deviations away from where they want. So if they do pivot based on this, that's fine. But the problem with that is the inflation bugaboo, the inflation that they're battling now will just continue to be out of control. Because I will tell you, and I think you actually would agree with this, if they make a pivot from raising rates to stopping and then subsequently lowering rates at some point, this inflation problem now will further get out of control. So it's one of those situations where they've put themselves in a corner where regardless of what they do, in my opinion, it winds up being bearish. I think, listen, the knee jerk for the stock market if they were to stop and then subsequently announce that you know, we're now going to look to lower rates again, the market would like that. I think that would be short-lived, and I think that's the problem that they're facing right now. Just my opinion. We'll see how it plays out. But there's no way they're going to be able to navigate this in an elegant, non-market-moving way. 
Yeah, I mean, again, and there is no playbook for that 40-year high inflation. The other stuff, we get it. We know how the Fed goes back and forth between talking, you know, hawkish and then being really dovish, that sort of thing, and really kind of modeling that towards what they expect as far as growth and just the over overheating of, of risk assets, that sort of thing, or the depression in risk assets, which brings us back to kind of Q4 of 2018, where it was the last time we saw the 10-year Treasury yield above 3%. The stock market sold off 20% in a straight line. Yeah, let's talk about crude for a second here because this is one that i think seems to be on everybody's radar here and we know that again there's been you know lots of fear of runaway crude prices we were talking about a couple weeks ago where some like major u.s banks were putting 200 300 price targets yeah. on crude you look at this one year chart though we saw that parabolic move from basically 90 to 130 in a matter of weeks and then it came back in, in the same amount of time that was in and around the all the the height of uncertainty around russia's invasion of Ukraine here, and then it worked its way back, but it never made a new high, got above 120, and here we are, you know, about 97 or so, down about 22%. You look at that chart, you see that support range between 90 and, and 93 or so. You see where the 200-day moving average is right around 93 or so. It seems like a foregone conclusion that we're gonna retest those levels. And I'm just curious, does crude oil, if it were to come in below, right, break that support. Is it doing the Fed's job? We can all agree that the Fed probably had little to do with that, right? And it might just be the easing of some of those kind of um, uncertainty levels now that we're four months into this war. Um, so talk to me a little bit about crude and how you're thinking about extrapolating it to other risk markets. Yeah, well, you, you've been saying for a while that if the global economy is slowing the way that people are talking about, the crude has no business being in the 120s, let alone, you know, 105. And you thought we could see this $90 level. Here we are. You still technically have an upward sloping moving average, which is encouraging. And obviously, yeah. we're about to test that now. I mean, I happen to think this test is going to bounce and Goldman Sachs has not backed off at all. I mean, there's still a lot of people talking about the risk to the upside being significant in crude oil. And I would agree with that. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens post President Biden's meeting in Saudi Arabia. You know, I think that could mark the short term low for crude oil, because my sense is the Saudis are not going to do anything that they, you know, I don't think they're really all that inclined to do anything that's going to help the United States, let alone uh, the global economy. So my sense is they're not going to add much more. And I think it's going to be a short-term low in the crude market. We'll see. I do think this is the sell-off has been leading up to this point. And this could be one of those things where, you know, sell the news, buy the actual event. And I think that's going to yeah. come in the form of crude oil over the next 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, they're already kind of indicating some of the words out of Saudi is that they're not going to be of a whole heck of a lot of help. And it really just kind of makes the Biden administration look that much more Foolish. helpless. I mean, well, not, yeah. not, not, you know, not to play politics, but, you know, going over there, basically hat yeah. in hand for this reason and not getting it. I mean, that's not particularly encouraging, but that's not what we're here to do. But it, be that, that, with all that said, I think the fundamentals are still in place for crude. I think if the Fed were to, you know, pivot the, to, you know, going back to the last few slides ago that we talked about, that's going to be, again, dollar bearish, which should theoretically be commodity bullish. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And I guess the last point we'll just make is that this kind of push and pull between, you know, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield was coming in just a week and a half ago. And I think it was coming in on fears of recession and the fears of that the Fed would likely have to pivot sooner than later. And then we get that hot jobs number and some other economic data. We see the yield get back above three percent. Right. And now, you know, it's coming back in a little bit. If you look at that one year chart and you were calling for a move back to 275, it overshot a little bit. 270, I think, was the level 
level that Carter was focused on. You see that level um, of support. What would it mean, Guy? It looks like we have a market here, 2.7 at 3% here. Do you think we're going to have a meaningful break one way or the other over the course of the summer and do lower rates? If it were to break lower, is that good for stocks right here? Yeah, that's a great question. I do think, you know, Carter, as I mentioned earlier, Carter thinks 2.5% in the 10-year. Um, if you're looking to play it, obviously, being long the TLT will get that done for you. And what does it mean? Well, I think, in my opinion, it means that the economy is continuing to slow down. And although lower rates are typically bullish for stocks, I think under this scenario, it's not. Because what the problem is going to be, again, just my opinion, 10-year can come down to 2.5%. I'm not sure the two-year is going to oblige. And I think this yield curve is going to continue to be inverted along all different areas of it. And that's not particularly bullish. So what is it telling you? Telling you that we're slowing down here, but inflation is still a concern. And this is something that Danny Moses pointed out on On the Tape last summer, and it's all coming to fruition now. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about um, earnings season. We're going to talk about a little bit more in a second here. But let's look at the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie. We know nearly 50 percent mm-hmm. of that is the euro. The euro touched parity for the first time in nearly two decades or so that with the dollar here, we know why the likelihood that Europe is in a recession, they're gonna continue to deal with some of the palpitations of the war um, in Ukraine and just the general weakness that they're seeing kind of work across the continent. Guy, when you look at this though, you look at the move since uh, in the Dixie, since a lot of US corporations, major multinationals guided, let's say in mid to late April, you had a Dixie that had just crossed 100. Um, This morning, it was just above 108, I think. Yeah, 108 eight and a half or so. That is a huge move for the U.S. dollars. So when you talk about what the headwinds are for U.S. companies that sell a lot overseas or we're expecting a lot of their growth to come overseas, that's a huge headwind here. But did we get a little bit overextended? You see the 200-day moving average all the way down there just below 99. You see that uptrend line that I've drawn drawn there. Maybe that's 104. I mean, again, it's not going to impact much of um, U.S. corporate earnings guidance right now, right? But if we were to see a move back towards that uptrend, um, that might be something that might signal that some of these macro headwinds are about to abate a little bit for U.S. multinationals. Yeah, and why do, and why would that happen? It's interesting you mentioned it. We talked about it yesterday, obviously, with Carter. And, you know, the scenario that I gave for the dollar to sell off here, you know, short of tactically short-term sell-off would be on the back of a stock market, theoretically, that's found its footing and will rally for the next couple of weeks. And maybe that's how it manifests itself. You know, the dollar sells off on a rallying broader stock market. It could be. But, you know, you brought up a great point. You know, we talk about Europe. You don't think it's a big deal. But when, again, when you consider Europe the eurozone, you're talking about 450 million people with a GDP greater than the United States. So it's not insignificant. So they're clearly having their issues, number one. It's manifesting itself with what's going on in the U.S. dollar versus the euro. You also have China. The zero COVID policy still is in, in play closing yep. down Macau. That's the second largest economy in the world behind the United States. And what does that all mean? Well, it's problematic. You know, the fact that we've been able to sort of thwart that for a while makes you believe it's just inevitable at some point that it works its way over here. Again, short-term rally in the equity market. I think it's a short-term sell signal for the dollar. But I think the dollar continues to sort of grind higher over time. And that's not particularly bullish. This is counterintuitive as that sounds yeah. for equities either. 
Well, it's interesting. So we talk about pricing power and what companies have it, right? So if you're a company like Pepsi that just reported this morning, um, stocks up a little bit, they were talking about, uh, they raised their revenue outlook guy. And one of the main reasons, and our friend at Wall Street Cynic, Jim yeah. Chanos was tweeting about it this morning. He said, organic revenues grew, he put organic in parentheses, 13% in the second quarter, only 1% on 1% unit growth. So basically they're increasing prices here. Yeah. So. A lot of companies, they have that, you know, they, they, they can try to push through cost increase. Might it kind of hurt demand, that sort of thing? It's obviously working for Pepsi here. And it's funny when you talk about consumer staples and their exposure to the dollar, here's a chart where I, I don't even have it here, but you know, this can, this thing over the course of the last year has made a series of higher lows. Uh, it is in a trading range, it's unchanged, but it just kind of shows you that companies with pricing power, you know, in this environment are gonna hold up um, particularly well. Curious your thoughts because as we get deeper into some of these staples or some of these companies with a lot of exposure last week on market call i detailed xlp that's etf that tracks this i really think we're going to see a retest of that kind of 68 dollar levels and a double bottom going back to the fall um, and i was thinking about playing it through the options market defining my risk i'm just curious how you're thinking about the proctor and the pepsi and the coke and that sort of thing in this environment they're they're the last group of stocks in my opinion that have managed to sort of avert the selling on the back of being expensive on a valuation basis, right? I mean, a Procter & Gamble is trading, I think, north of 25 times next year's earnings. That's not cheap. None of these stocks are cheap. I think the reason the market seems to find them in this environment is because theoretically, they do have the pricing power that you just talked about. And if you watch that interview this morning, I mean, maybe I'm making too much of it, but it was almost like as if he was snickering over the fact that, yeah, we can basically raise our prices. People are going to buy our stuff. And sometimes we actually put less product in a bag and we charge the same price, which is effectively a price hike as well. I mean, that's that's an enviable position to be in until yeah. it's not, right? To your point, at a certain point, it catches up with them as well. And I think that's where we are now. I think the market that is concerned about valuations will at some point find their way into names that in this environment are still too expensive. Matter of fact. All right, let's close out on a couple of things That's actually a pretty cogent point by me. That was very cogent, Guy. I mean, all right, let's talk about like the big event after we get through the CPI. It's going to be bank earnings this morning. I thought it was interesting. I think you love this when you have a bank mm -hmm. either upgrade or downgrade the rating of one of their peers. City upgrades JP Morgan Chase to buy us a stock. Is that an attractive entry point? You've been saying that at these levels, you have not been able, you're not calling a bottom, but you have not been able to buy a stock like JP Morgan at this um, valuation relative to its tangible book in a mm -hmm. very long time. You and I have also talked with Carter. There is one unfilled gap. We talked about it yesterday down there towards 105 or so. Talk to me a little bit about positioning sentiment, if you will, into this earnings week for these names. And we know, you know, Jamie Dimon has been, um, you know, out there talking about his kind of dour feelings about the economy in general. But does the stock at these levels, 115 or so, reflect that here? It's interesting. I'm trying to game this out. And I think there's a chance when JP Morgan reports that it's going to be an extraordinary quarter. Its number's going to be very good. People are going to look at price to tangible book and say, wait a second, you know, at 1.4, 1.5 times, it's too cheap given where it has been historically. And I think there's a chance that he might back off from the rhetoric that he gave a month or so ago about hurricanes and those types of things. I think he might walk it back a little bit. And I think that might be enough. Again, just my opinion. 
for this stock to trade and fill that gap that we've talked about. And maybe that bolsters the broader market as well. I'll say this about the Morgan Stanley downgrade of American Express. Don't just, and I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but think about what's happening. Think about why American Express is different than MasterCard and Visa. MasterCard and Visa just process transactions. They take no credit risk. American Express does. And we're getting into an environment where non-performing loans are going to be a bit of a problem. And that falls right squarely on the back of what American Express does. So I would look at that downgrade a little more seriously in terms of what it means for the broader market and what it means theoretically for the economy as well. Yeah, we have a one-year chart of this American Express. And you look at that 150 breakdown level guy, you know, from just kind of last month here, mm-hmm. that was fairly significant. You know, the stock is down, you know, a little less than 30% from those all-time highs. Remarkably, guy, in February, you know, when tanks yeah. were kind of rolling from Russia into Ukraine and all of the issues that were fairly well telegraphed about broken supply chains and inflationary pressures that will only be exasperated. You know, the thought there was that the U.S. high-end consumer, the global consumer, who is a American Express customer, is going to be just fine. So it's pretty remarkable how sentiment changes. That 150 level, I think that will be a big one. Let's see how it bounces. And then just lastly, you know, let's go back to J.P. Morgan. We have that chart. You see that downtrend. You see where the support is. You know, it's down there back towards that kind of 105 gap fill. And you look at that 120 level, the breakdown level from June, big level. So that we're just kind of highlighting those is that, you know, those are the resistance levels. Get above there and good fundamental news. And that might be the bottom in on good volume over this last few weeks. All right, let's hit one last thing, guy, before we get out Hold of on, here. Hold on, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's, no. Yeah, you put it up where it's got to be the Bitcoin. we got to be talking about Oh, Bitcoin. look at that. They're too quick. They're, they're good at what they do, guy. But here's the deal. Helter Skelter, probably one of your least favorite Beatles songs, would you say or no? You know, it's funny about the Beatles. Um, everybody <laughs> puts the Beatles in the top two, three bands. Beatles for me is probably a top 15, one five, but it's yeah. definitely not a top five or top 10. But anyway, back to you. Well, when you get to the bottom, you get back to the top. Here, let's talk about this helter-skelter. So-called rising wedge pattern makes Bitcoin's recovery look shaky. They're, this is Bloomberg. They're showing two of these patterns. We're in another one. This 2000 level seems to be precarious. We just threw up a chart of the Bitcoin futures that shade on the CME. Um, look at that downtrend that's been in place since just below 50,000 people. That was just in late March here. Here we are on either side a 20. It looks really kind of nasty here. And if you look at you back out that futures chart um, going five years, you see why this 20,000 level is so important. Guy, give me your take. You and I don't know a whole heck of a lot about the Bitcoin, but why is it something that we kind of focus on? It's just a measure of kind of investor sentiment and what I, they're I willing think to kind of ex- yeah. I think, I th- yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that is. I think Tesla is as well. I think there are a number of stocks that sort of, fit, you know, they're larger than the market, right? There's something yeah. that just sort of express what participants feel about what's going on. I think what Bitcoin is telling you, the fact that once again, it's below 20,000, again, just my opinion, is this CPI number is going to be a lot hotter than people think. And you say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, it means the Fed's got to stay in the game later. And I think it's not coincidental, Dan, we've talked about this, that Bitcoin topped out in November, the same time the Fed pivoted. So what Bitcoin below 20,000 into a CPI report tells me is the CPI numbers are probably going to be hotter than people think. That's just my opinion. All right, fair enough. I think we covered a lot of ground here. I mean, let's, let's just kind of 
let's kind of sum things up a little bit. That CPI reading, that's the main event this week. And maybe, you know, just maybe um, if we just see that moderate just a little bit with some of what's happened in the commodity markets, maybe it's enough to kind of put in a bottom if earnings are not worse than expected. I think it's important. Why did we spend so much time talking about ServiceNow and Microsoft being down in sympathy? Because again, maybe that news kind of makes investors think that we're going to get a bit more of this, right, by other companies when they start to report. And maybe it's just not as bad as people think. And that's how you get near-term mm-hmm. intermediate bottoms. I will say this, one last thing, guy. Almost everybody I talk to, um, you know, investors, um, strategists, everyone's really bearish. So when everyone's on one side, right, and we're still waiting for expectations to come down, if expectations don't get ratcheted down from an estimate standpoint as much as people think, and everyone's as bearish as they've been in a very long time, those are the conditions that set up for rallies. And we've seen it before. We've seen it a number of times over the last couple of years, right? These oversold conditions, everybody's on one side of the boat and you get these face ripping rallies. My only point is I'm surprised it hasn't happened already. It doesn't mean it won't, but that's it. By the way, two hours of fast money tonight for those so inclined, five to six, six to seven. That's why I'm all knotted up because I'm on way to the city. But that's it for Market Call. Tomorrow we'll be back with the great Carter Braxton Worth, by the way. But I want to thank today's sponsor, CME Group, Dan, where risk in fact does meet opportunity. We are powered by Open Exchange, as you know. We will be back tomorrow. We want to hear from you. Like us, tweet us, email us, whatever it is. Subscribe, Dan. What are all those other words that people your age use? I don't know. Whatever they are, do it. And we'll see you back tomorrow at 1 o'clock. All right. See you later, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.